Hi, everybody. Jose Palomino with another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. And today's guest is Florian Meyer. And Florian is a fractional CFO. So he works with companies generally in that mid-market, $10 million, $20 million range and above, uh, mostly in industrial and manufacturing categories. And he is truly a strategic financial thinker. And it's not just keeping track of the books, but it's making those big picture decisions that can actually affect the very future of your company and the success of your strategy. So listen closely as Florian joins our show right now. Well, welcome Florian to Business Growth On Purpose. Well, good morning. I'm Florian Meyer and I work for a company called Newhouse Partners and I act as a fractional CFO or a board member for basically owner-managed private companies uh, in a range of 10 million or more in revenue. So that's what I do for a living. Wow, and that's exactly the, uh, the the kind of the the target audience I tend to end up working with over the last seventeen years at Valley Prop. So I know I know those people, and I and I know what they're dealing with as well. But what I love about the opportunity to speak with you here today on the show, and for our audience, is the fact that uh, we we sometimes look at strategy kind of from a marketing point of view, but there's a whole financial dimension in terms of things that get into that, right? Like things people yep. need to look at. And all too often, I find that owners think financial management is they have like a monthly P&L and they're not really looking or they're looking at production numbers, you know, coming from the production floor if they're in manufacturing. Yeah. But in your opinion and the work you do, and, and, I, and I also like to draw the sharp distinction between a CFO and a bookkeeper controller, because all too often I also run into bookkeeper controllers that are given CFO titles. Uh, so, yes. okay. so, so the question is, um, what are some things just for an owner listening to this, running a company like that, what are some of the things they should be thinking about of having available to them or numbers they should be looking at to help them make better decisions? I guess I'd start by answering your first question in the sense, what's the difference between a CFO and a controller or a bookkeeper? So okay. a CFO should be a big picture person. And I call it for myself, I call myself a financial general manager. So I look at the entire business, any business that I look at, and I try to look at where are we going with that business? You know, what do we need to change? And so I don't get overly involved in the detail of the accounting. Uh, I will make sure that the accounting makes sense. But, you know, whether we're off by a couple of dollars one way or the other is not something I would do. That's something that would a controller or a bookkeeper should be very concerned about. So they, I would say they would be much more detail-oriented than, than I am. Uh, and so therefore I'm the big picture guy looking at, and I'll, and I'll generally work with the president or the board, or in many cases, the owners and say, okay, how do we move forward the business? You know, where have we had some challenges and where are there some opportunities? And that's what I would look at with the business and get beyond just the numbers. And so for, for a business owner, he's saying, you know, where am I at today? Who am I competition? And where, where are my unique advantages to move forward? And then I would work with the owner to make sure that we develop that strategy and the other part, quite naturally, as a finance person, is to make sure we have the financing available, either inter internally or externally. It doesn't matter. But we look at both sides. Uh, here in Canada, which you're using the U.S. market, but in the Canadian market, you've got a fairly lucrative research and development grant program from the federal government, which is also supported by the. So that is one way of funding a company. But there are many ways. And, you know, one, one example is that I, we had one client uh, 
they needed to buy out one of the owners and they were looking at additional financing. What we did is we actually brought the council receivable to current and now we have plenty of money in the bank to buy out one of the owners. So there's many ways of skinning the cat, but you need someone that's a big picture guy that works with the senior management and owners. So one of the things that's, I think, uh, kind of connected to your, to your response that I could see right away, Florian, is knowing what's possible. Like if you're inside the machine all day and, you know, so like you said, the, you know, you're making sure the book's square and everything's being kept track of. And then, you know, owners often fear like, OK, that, that I have to rest the credit line after a year or I have to do, you know, I have my my uh, I'm the signatory on that SBA loan or whatever those fears are they sometimes don't really see the bigger picture of what's possible. So when you work with an owner, do you find that they, they really, in your experience, that they actually know what's possible or that's the first step for them to know that it's not just go to the bank, extend your, your, your you know, term out your, your line of credit. It can be a lot more sophisticated than that. Well, one of the examples is, you know, a company I'm working with right now is that what I said to the owner is that you've got to stop working in the business, but you've got to start working on the business. So one of the first things we did is we actually developed a five-year plan of where we could think, take the business. So right now we're at $10 million, $12 million business, and we, we see clearly the potential to make it a $40 million business in five years. So there's a part of the market that uh, is underserved, that we, we could serve, and so what we developed was a whole new production platform to allow us to serve that market. And then one of the elements that I've worked on is to make sure we had the financing to support that expansion. And so that, you know, there's a dramatic, so, so it's actually a new way of, a new business for him. One he'd looked at before, but one he had not implemented. And now we're looking solidly at implementing that, that new strategy. Well, what, what also I think can happen is, especially if, if a business, let's, let's say, moving from like 10 to 12, right, this, that's substantial growth and, you know, percentage of a 20% year over year growth. They're getting busy. Now we're talking about labor shortages in any of the industrial categories that certainly the B2B categories I, I tend to work in. Um, so it's hard for them to think strategically when they're th- when they have to think daily so tactically and then you say you know work on your business you know michael gerber what emith what 30 years ago talked about that right so and i hear a lot of owners say that phrase but they don't really do it they they think they're kind of doing it because they joined vistage or something which is fine but they're not really doing it really so so how how do in your experience what are some of the steps an owner should take to kind of say i got to get i got to elevate so I can see more what's possible. And yet the business needs me to figure out stuff day to day. What are, what's kind of the interim step? Because I don't think that's just flipping a switch. No, part of it is to recognize clearly what can the owner, what is his unique talent? And we try to get him to focus on that unique talent. And so in this, this case where I'm talking about his unique talent is selling. Okay. And so we should make sure that there's the, the other parts of the business, the, the production, the accounting, you know, all and, you know, some extent, the marketing, all is taken care of by other people. And then he can back himself up with some additional sales support, but he becomes the, the key salesperson for the business and not just managing everything that goes on because that, that won't work. Um, so, I, you know, you just got to step back and, and, you know, the first element is to say, what is uni- he uniquely or she uniquely skilled at? And let, let that person focus on that. Right. So they have a contribution to make, but it and 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 also some of the things they hands are on may be 
if they could get some honest feedback from the team, maybe the team would appreciate their hands weren't so into those pies as well, because they're not always the best at everything, although they may have started the business and they had to do everything. Well, that's, I would say, fortunately, and unfortunately, for some people, I'm fairly straightforward and honest. And so if that feedback is required, uh, they'll get it from me. And, okay. uh, and so, and, and I say openly to clients is if they don't want that honest feedback to allow them to move forward, then don't engage me. That's okay. Right. Because, you know, the, you know, there's many businesses out there and many of them won't, won't succeed, unfortunately, for a number of reasons. And, and I would say most often it's because senior management won't allow the, the you know, all the employees to do what they can do best and, and get out of micromanaging. Right. So the culture isn't really, it's a micromanagement culture versus an empowerment culture. That's right. That's right. Right. And, you know, one example is I had a, one of my clients, I'm on the board of that client. And, and as we rolled into uh, COVID, we knew that we were going to slow down. And I simply said to the board and senior management, we now have time to think. So what's the first thing we want to do? Now, I'm not sure at the end of the day, it was the first thing we should have done. But what we did is we rejigged all of our manufacturing. And so we ordered some equipment to allow us to dramatically change how we would produce in the future. And that was, so that process started almost you know, a little over two years ago. The large equipment that we ordered has just been installed. Wow. And so, so but it's, you know, so what we should have done in hindsight was probably do the marketing study first. We're doing that now. Okay. At least we're doing those things to allow us. To, so tomorrow we'll be a completely different company and much more successful. Right. But you but it's interesting. Uh, and this goes to something that's, you know, that we're all in every business living today, which is uh, supply chain challenges. So here you are two years ago looking at increased capacity. And it took almost two years to bring it online. And I'm sure it wasn't for lack of trying a lack of desire or effort or, or whatever. Oh, it, was, but, it was a two year order time for that piece of equipment. Well, just think about that. Right. So. Yeah. So imagine coming to that decision now would push you out to 20, 24, 25 and who knows. Right. So, so that also means taking some risks, right? The reality is strategy is decisions and decisions can't know, you can't have perfect information. We cannot see the future. So how do you advise, you know, leadership teams in terms of how to balance risk reward, you know, what, is it just based on their personal disposition? Like some people are very risk averse. Other people are very, you know, caution to the wind. Or is there some approach that you recommend people take so they can make a decision that doesn't bankrupt them, but at the same time allows them to pursue growth aggressively? Well, what we did is basically the manufacturing strategy we ended up with was a three-pronged strategy. So the first one was ordering this, this uh, 3 million plus piece of equipment, which would take two years to get. Uh, which is now here. Uh, after that, we had, we did several other steps. And what we did in all cases, we looked at what was the benefit of ordering equipment and would they pay for themselves? And then the second element, uh, element of that, which is a little unusual because I was on the board, not the CFO, is I actually went out to the bank. I looked at three banks, the existing bank and two other banks, and made sure we had the financing available to finance that growth. So long before we spent the money, we had the $10 million in the bank or available to allow us, because we didn't have that before, to allow us to put a lease in place for 100% of the cost. And we also knew that the benefit of the machinery would pay for itself very quickly. Right. So that's a, that's a situation where you need to know that you have the, the ongoing you know, operational working capital. It's not just having new machine installed and that 
you can't buy supplies, you can't staff it, you can't, you know, all, what good is it at that point? You have you've bought a paperweight, a giant paperweight, but a paperweight nonetheless. Yes. Yeah. So you have to look at the whole picture and say, OK, can we you know, how does that machine benefit us? And it, what it did is it expanded, as you said, expanded our capacity and it also expanded our ability to diversify into different related but different products. So it was a big win win. And on some of the other equipment we bought, it, you know, some of them are robots. So they're going to replace some of the people, unfortunately. And but but the staff know that that the change is going to cause some displacement of some people. And on that side, we've also looked at you know who would we likely displace, what would it likely cost us, and what outplacement can we offer to make that transition as seamless as possible? Because that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to be uh, difficult for people. Uh, we recognize that some are keepers and some are not, and the ones that aren't, we're going to do our best to make sure they're reemployed somewhere else. Well, it's interesting because like in manufacturing, I, I think uh, there's a stat, a recent interview told me, and, and I, I assume it's correct, that by 2028, you know, five, six years from now, there'll be two and a half million, and this is U.S. based, two and a half million U.S. manufacturing jobs that will go unfilled just because of the way the uh, labor pool is shaping up right now. So, yeah. so here, that is what I hear again and again is the biggest challenge is finding skilled labor to make the stuff that people want to buy. So from a from a financial planning point of view, like you, you say, okay, well let's say that's let's say that that's that's true and it's not going to change in your locality. Like you can't you can't will the workers into existence. So but you can order some robots, right? But that's not trivial. That's you know that's that's CapEx, that's OpEx, that's uh, it's a way of working and a whole new thing. So how do you help somebody transition like come to grips with those facts? So you still have do you still have owners thinking, well, you know, the labor, you know, they'll come back. They'll, they'll, we'll, we'll get the people we need, uh, or, you know, kind of in denial of what's happening everywhere. So how do you help them shift into thinking about what we really, really got to do, even if it's not something they prefer to do? Well, I guess what we've done is we've we've evaluated all of our staff to their skill level. We've also advised them that the world be changes. And so we want to see, I would say more so than anything, we want to see people that are willing to work and learn. So if they're willing to work and learn and, and, and we'll empower them to do some of that activity, then they, then we can do the training to allow them because some of this equipment, uh, it's, it's actually easier to operate than, than some of the older equipment. Some of the older equipment did need some unique skills, which we, we are having trouble filling. Some of the newer equipment, it's, it's, it's a bunch of bunch buttons you push, not that I could do it. Right. Uh, so I would say the training on some of that newer stuff is probably less difficult, but it's more, you know, we want staff that are willing to do their very best enjoy what they're doing and be solid contributors. And if, if they've got those skills, then they're keepers. Well, well, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I run into talking to a lot of different people for our show is, uh, you know, manufacturing has had a reputation for a long time of being, what is it, a dark, uh, dark, dirty and dangerous, right? And modern manufacturing really isn't that now. And, and it is a path for a lot of young people that they should be pursuing instead of, you know, with all due apologies to people who are English lit majors, you know, maybe a bigger ROI than being an English lit major, unless that's your passion and that's what you're going to do at an academic level. Um, so my, uh, my question to you is, have you seen much in the way of on the job training programs growing to fill that need? Like people saying, Hey, I, I can't find them. I got to, I got to, create the opportunity and commit resources that a decade ago, I didn't have to, I could bring them in ready to go. Now I got to help train them to be ready to go. 
Well, I would say in this one company, we spent a fair amount of effort to uh, identify who are the best people because of the total staffing that we have in the company, let's say it'll go down to 75%. So 25% unfortunately will become surplus. And so we're saying with that 75%, we've actually put together programs to allow them to better understand what they're doing, understand why they're doing it, because in some cases, you know, it's it's we're we're actually producing stuff that that's fairly tight tolerances. So they need to understand their own measurement capabilities, not just waiting for the inspector to come by. So we're doing a fair amount of training. And so we actually have a separate department, inspector department, that will work with the staff to make sure they understand why they're doing it and how they can do it more effectively. And the pres- in this case, the president's door is always open. He said, if you have an issue, I'm here. And we'll do our very best to make sure we solve that issue. We're not going to cover it up. So well, well and, and, you know, that goes back to, I mean, this is, it, it, it can be cliche, but if it's meant sincerely, I think it can work, which is win-wins, right? There's, there's things the company needs to do, but it doesn't have to be crushing on an employee. It could actually make for a better workplace. It could be more interesting. A lot of times workers want to learn something new because they've, they're doing the same thing for 10 years. They'd rat, you know, they're actually bored. I mean, that, that sets in after a while. Um, so that, that's interesting. So, so one thing that's changed a lot, and I think this last two years really highlighted it, uh, ever since uh, what Elahu Golrat wrote the, the goal and people started thinking about supply chains more strategically, what, 30, 40 years ago. And obviously there were other, you know, Deming and all of that before that. Um, everybody's, started going to like very just in time, very lean inventories, and always assuming that the other guy further down the link of my supply chain will have what they need in buffer. So, and I think from a financial engineering point of view, there's a lot of companies that fell into like, well, well, I don't want to top my balance sheet with inventory, so I'll just be as lean as possible. And it was like musical chairs in the last two years, the music stopped. And then we realized everybody downstream was doing the same thing. How do you see that coming? How do you see the idea of inventory as a strategic asset? And it's, it does consume capital, right? There's no, no way around that. How do you see companies responding to that? Are they just waiting out this current like supply chain tightness and say, oh, I'll get back to normal, it'll be fine. Or are they strategically planning for, I'll never be caught in that position again? And what can they realistically do? Because you can't have a year of inventory on everything you might need. Uh, or else you'd have no balance sheet then left. I mean, it'd be all it'd all be uh, non-cash assets at that point. Well, I would say I, I, I've got two examples here. One is uh, w- the owner of one of the businesses recognized, and he produces fairly large pieces of equipment, you know, million dollars a piece. He recognized that there would be a shortage. And so he pre-bought some of the stuff that he would need to allow him to pr- still produce, whereas competitors would not be able to produce. Mm. So that was one element. So we did actually improve or, or increase the amount of inventory for a short period of time, which is probably you know two or three years. On the other side, I have another client that what we did is we looked at how many SKUs do we make? And are there SKUs that we're making that we don't make any money on? Mm. And so that, they, and we actually had our meeting yesterday. So that they talked about what are the component parts and can we reduce the number of component parts we make and therefore produce less products, longer, longer production runs, and therefore more profitable and profit. And so, and with that, we'll also be able to reduce the amount of inventory because some of the inventory we have, as you said, if we produce, let's say a widget, in some cases that, that we, to produce it, we have to do two years of supply. Well, it's got to sit in the balance sheet for two years. So we're saying, is it really worth the two years 
of inventory. And so part of that will now become a marketing question. We'll say, will the clients pay a premium for us to have that for two years? And if the answer is no, then that product will disappear. Well, and that could also be an opportunity to reach out to the client is, would you like us to stock this for you? And here's the program or, you know, some version yeah. of having the client bear the risk or bear a larger share of the risk. Yeah. Uh, and we, we didn't do that in the past. And that's where we're, that's, and what we saw this year is our margin was going to zero. Our net profit was going to zero. And we said, okay, how do we change that? And we're saying we can't be all things to all people and still be profitable. If you don't well, make a profit, you can't stay in business. Well, that yeah, right. That 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 is that that is that rule. Um, you know about that. That is absolutely true. So I guess uh, just to round out, and, and, and Florian, thank you. This is a great conversation. I think anyone listening is this. A, there's a, a, a lot of nuggets in here that I think are, are major takeaways for anyone uh, thinking through what they might have to do next. Uh, this is too big a topic to really cover thoroughly, but I do want to just touch on it, which is. Uh, the approach to pricing, you alluded to marketing, right? Yep. Meaning you need to have some insights into what things are worth to your customers. I still see customers, and candidly, I'm talking about 10, $20 million operations, still doing some version of cost plus pricing and not any kind of value pricing. So when you run into that, if you do run into it, what, how do you get people to embrace, because it is more complicated to do value-based pricing, but and that's part of what it is, I think, is people just find it easier to say, cost me X, I'll just throw 30% on it, 40%, 100% on it, whatever it is. But how would you tell an owner that they have to look at this in a much more comprehensive way? Well, that's what I say when this one example, Jose, is that uh, we looked at the manufacturing strategy first, and in essence, we should have looked at the marketing strategy first. Mm. And that should have dictated what kind of machinery we would buy. So hopefully we fought the right equipment. But I would say, and that more goes back into your area of expertise, is that you need to go survey your customers, survey uh, that are non-customers, mm -hmm. survey people you've lost. In, in this one case, we discovered that we've actually lost. So our sales have gone up, but our unit sales have gone down. So we've lost market share in the market. And so we have to understand why did we lose market share and what products does our customers want from us as opposed to what products we give them. They're, you know, and we're saying they're probably not right. And, and funnily enough, in that client, I've been asking since day one, which is many years ago, what is our product development strategy? Mm. So if you don't have that market research to say what your clients want, then it's going to be very difficult for you to under, understand what new products you should bring to the market. And I, and I kind of go back to the 3M model where they say a percentage of their sales has to be new product. And I think that's what every business has to look at is that, a percentage of your sales going forward have to represent new products you brought to market because unfortunately the market's changing so quickly that everyone else is going to eat your lunch if you're not moving forward. Right. And what's interesting, sometimes in shrinking markets, you could have growing sales. Like I'm sure like towards the end, some buggy whip manufacturer was getting a lot of real growth because there were the few that remained. Right. So they're yeah. saying, wow, life is wonderful. We're selling more buggy whips than ever until the music stops and then it's over. And, and that's, so, so having that insight is, is really powerful. Well, Florian, uh, first of all, thanks again for, for just stopping by Business Growth on Purpose. We really appreciate it. And if somebody listening to this wanted to know more about you, what you do, how to get in touch with you, uh, where would you direct them? So I do have a website, it's not that active, but it's there. So it's uh, newhousepartners.com. 
I also am on LinkedIn, and I think both at Newhouse and Florian Meyer. And you can reach out to me at Florian, uh, I think it's Florian Meyer or F Meyer at newhousepartners.com. And my telephone number is here in Toronto is 416-873-8684. And so, you know, I, there's many ways to get a hold of me. And uh, initial discussion is no cost. And just to understand what I do is, is I'm quite willing to speak to anybody to give that uh, understanding. Fantastic. Thank you very much for the opportunity. No, absolutely. Our pleasure here, uh, Florian. Thank you again and, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.